So good morning again, and welcome. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is not John. I'm Seth. I'm not the pastor. If you are visiting, um, John is away this week, and he asked that I would uh, take a turn preaching. My wife is Becky. She's sitting over there with her mouth full. Um, and the two of us are thrilled at the prospect of having our first child. We're going to have a girl in October, October 23rd. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. And uh, real exciting, but it's dangerously close to being a Halloween baby, and that's scary for me. But Becky says, think of it like a Reformation Day baby, so it's a little better. Um, the other 364 days of the year when I'm not preaching, I am a gym teacher in Philly, and I also help out at the church here as a, on the missions team. So this morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Um, at the Temptations, this is about, if you turn there in your Bibles, don't have the page number, sorry, got to look it up. Um, this is the Temptations of Jesus just before he's about to enter into his earthly ministry. Uh, this event is also recorded in Matthew chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 1, which we're going to look at, we're going to refer to Matthew 4 a little bit, as kind of this corresponding story. The Gospel of Luke as a whole, the entire book, is named after the author uh, Luke, who was a physician, he was a close associate of Paul the Apostle. And it's a historical account that was written by Luke um, for Gentiles. Now, who are Gentiles? Gentiles are non-Jews. So us, this is perfect, unless, unless you are Jewish, though it's still appropriate to you. Um, and it's basically put together from his study and from eyewitness accounts of those who were present and saw Jesus uh, walking this earth. So again, our passage, Luke 4, verse 1, uh, verse 1 through 15. If we look at the preceding chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's all about Jesus' birth and his early years. Um, and it ends, chapter 3 ends with Jesus' baptism and a genealogy which goes from, from Jesus himself all the way back to Adam. Now, the baptism of Jesus is important for our passage today, just to keep in mind, because that's where Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, comes down like a dove, and um, God the Father announces that He is pleased in His Son and is sending Jesus off to begin His ministry. So, before we read our passage, uh, we're just going to pray. I like to think, since God is the author of the Bible, we can ask the author to help us understand. So... Let's just pray before we read the word. Lord God, I thank you for a chance to gather here to worship you through song and through prayer and through communion and giving and all these different things, Lord. Um, I pray that in, uh, in my weakness and my nervousness, Lord, that you would be glorified and that, this, that your word here would speak to every one of us here, that we could take something home to grow closer to you, become more like your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, so starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you... I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And, the, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is a fascinating passage. Jesus is fasting and praying, communing with God for about 40 days out in the wilderness. It's over a month. seems like he's being prepared for his ministry. He's being tempted. So when you stop and think about it, this is Jesus, the Son of God, who's being tempted. And what's crazier is that it's Satan himself who is there doing the tempting. It's not a little demon minion. That would, you know, it's, it's Satan himself who's there. And this short passage gives us some insights into dealing with temptation to sin. Um, this passage shows us three ways that the enemy attacks us with lies, with accusations, and with temptations. We also see how Jesus responds to these and what we can learn from him. And it also gives us a chance to look at our own lives and see where our own heart stands in regards to sin and in regards to holiness. So the first question I have for us today, we're going to be looking at the first four verses, uh, is are you seeking holiness in your own power? Are you seeking holiness in your own power? So verses 1 through 4, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus was leaving the Jordan River, where he was baptized by John. The Holy Spirit was upon him and led him into the wilderness. So I want to take careful note of that uh, context for the rest of the passage that the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was full of the Spirit, is what it says. And he heads into the wilderness. So what's interesting is to think about who else is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's us, right? Like what John said a few weeks ago when he, he's been preaching through these different uh, attributes about God, when he was preaching about the Holy Spirit. Everyone who believes that, um, who has accepted Christ as their Savior, if He's the Lord of your life, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Jesus is about to enter a tremendous ordeal, uh, being tempted for these 40 days, but the Spirit was with him and leading him. So this same power that was in Jesus in this situation lives in us today. And that's I think, is really important as we're looking uh, at the rest of this passage and reflecting on it, to remember that the same power that was in Jesus at this time is in us today. And if we remember from what John was preaching, what does the Holy Spirit do for us? In our lives as believers, He directs us, He leads us, calls things to our remembrance, He pricks our conscience, convicts us, comforts us, enables us to do good, sanctifies us, makes us more like Jesus, right? When we decide to forgive somebody instead of seeking vengeance, that's the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Or when we decide to give something instead of to withhold, that's also the Holy Spirit working in our lives. So let's just keep that in mind, that the same power that he had at this time is what's in, in our lives now. So Jesus was fasting and praying in the wilderness for 40 days. We see from verse 2 that he was tempted. And we're just looking at the, um, 
the very end of it. This is just a glimpse of what was happening in the wilderness over the whole month. At the end of the time, he would be exhausted. He was hungry. He'd be physically weak. So Jesus is weak and vulnerable at this time. And also, when we're physically weak, when we're uh, we're physically tired, our mind starts to slow down. We're not as sharp as we normally are when we have a lot of energy. So it's here when Jesus is tired, when he's hungry, and when he's alone. That's when Satan pounces. So we see in the next verse, I believe verse 3, we see what Satan's first temptation is. It starts off with an accusation, followed by a temptation. Satan spitefully says, if you are the Son of God, with insinuating that he does not believe that Jesus is. It's an accusation that, God is not who he, uh, that Jesus is not who he claims to be. And it's a taunt to try to get a rise out of Jesus and make him prove that he's the Son of God. The devil tells him to make bread from stones. It's seemingly a harmless task. We might think, why is that a temptation? Why is this such a big deal? And Jesus is hungry, so his body's literally starving. So this would be a pretty strong temptation to like create some food to eat something. And just imagine what it would be like if we had that power, you know, oh, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, boom, you got a Big Mac, or I'm thirsty, boom, you got some Gatorade, things like that. But, but you see, it seems like it's a simple temptation to us, but the deeper connotations to Jesus doing such a miracle would be to undermine his character. Um, Satan is trying to get Jesus to use his power for personal gain. But Jesus came to serve and not to, not to be served. We learned that from Mark chapter 10. The physical, the physical temptation was for food, but the consequence would be Jesus not trusting God's plan and provision. And after all, it was the Holy Spirit that brought him into the wilderness. So, let's take a moment to reflect here for ourselves. What are some sins that are constantly dogging you? What are some temptations that are always behind you? Now, you're going to have to answer this for yourself in your own mind. What are some sins that are constantly after you? Is it impatience or anger? Wanting to lash out at your wife or your, or your husband or your family or your kids, friends? Is it vanity? Always wanting to look better in front of the mirror or in front of other people? Is it pride? Assuming you're better than someone else? Taking things home from work that don't belong to you? Looking at images and videos on the internet that you'd be ashamed if anybody else knew you saw them? Maybe your temptation is to rely on a substance like alcohol or tobacco or even coffee or soda or ice cream uh, and for comfort instead of placing your faith uh, in the Lord for your comfort. Or what about accusations? What are some accusations that you level at yourself or that you found leveled at you? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I don't work hard enough. I'm not enough this. I'm not enough that. I'm not enough. I don't deserve people's kindness. My sins are too great for the Lord to look on me with love and, and grace. So, if you take a moment to think about what those temptations, what those accusations are, but it's also important to look at when is it that we are vulnerable to them? When, is it, when are you at your weakest physically and mentally? When are you most likely to give in to those? Either by reaction or by mulling it over and then deciding to follow through. Is it when you come home from work and you need to cook dinner or clean up or something else around the house that needs fixing? Or is it when you have been home all day long looking after your children and your patience is paper thin? Is it after a failure, after an embarrassment, after your feelings have been hurt? 
when are you most likely to listen to those accusations and temptations? And, like I said, these are important questions to ask ourselves. They're not easy questions to ask, but they're important. It's very important for us to be self-aware so we know when we're weakest and most open um, to the devil's temptations or sins or these accusations that will bury us deeper in despair. That way you can proactively take a stand. So when you go home, take some time to think about it um, and pray that the Lord would reveal to you when it is that you are most vulnerable so we could try to be proactive. But how do we respond, right? How do we respond? Let's take a look at how Jesus responds to the satanic attacks of temptations, accusations. We look at verse 4. He quotes Scripture. Jesus' first recorded words after his baptism is to quote Scripture. And I think that's significant. He speaks the truth to the temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. If you go back and read Deuteronomy 8, it's talking about how God was faithful to Israel when they were in the wilderness before entering the promised land. Jesus is recalling God's faithfulness to his people in times of need. He doesn't try to debate the issue with Satan or think about it a little too much. He just speaks the truth to it. My wife, she had a professor in college um, who said, we're forgetful like Israel. We're all forgetful people. It's, it's easy for us to look at Israel wandering through, the, wandering through the wilderness in the Old Testament and see all their mistakes and think, I would never do that. But uh, we do the same. We do the same all the time. Maybe not as grand or defiant, but we make those mistakes all the time. One minute we're thankful for God's provision, and the next moment we're worried that he's never going to provide for us again. It's like Becky and I, we were praying that we would have a baby, and we find out that Becky was pregnant. We were so excited. We are exuberant about it. And then as you know, time goes on and reality, quote-unquote, starts to set in, we start getting worried about finances and expenses going up, income going down, things like that. And we start to get nervous and, and feel like God's hung us out to dry when it's not at all the case. But God's faithful. If, you're, if you don't believe it, I would encourage you to read the Gospel of Matthew. He, he means what he says. If you, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it's all about, um, it's supposed to a Jewish audience, so it's full of a lot of the prophecies that were written about Jesus and how Jesus came to fulfill those. And so God means what he says. Let's be students of the Word. Remember how Jesus was quoting Scripture. Be students of the Word to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. Are you reading your Bible? Not just, not just at church here or with your family, but are you personally and privately reading the Bible? Become familiar with, with what God has done throughout the Scripture. And when God answers a prayer of yours, write it down. Come up with a way to remember how God's been answering your prayers. And Becky and I, we have some friends of ours, we, we have a big jar that whenever we see the Lord answering a prayer or uh, we see the Lord moving in somebody's life, we put a button in the jar. So I went to Walmart and I bought this great big jar and everybody says it's too big and it takes too, it's too long, it's too slow to fill it up. I think it's lack of faith, but that's all right. Um, but remember what John said in the past he, when he encourages us to read the Word? He, he always says to start with baby steps. You don't have to suddenly start reading Genesis through to Revelation like a few chapters a day. Start small. Take a couple verses at a time each day. Um, baby steps to get there. Another strategy is to preach the gospel to yourself. When you're tempted, you're weak or vulnerable, tell yourself what Jesus has done for you on the cross. I think the songs we just sang are beautiful about that about God's grace, grace alone, things like that. We're not constantly being condemned. Before God, there's no shame. 
We have no shame. Because of what, God, what Jesus has done on the cross for us already. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He left it in the grave when He rose again. So we don't have to worry about that now. There's no shame to it. So trying to be holy, and we talk about fighting sin and temptation, we can't do that on our own. We have the question, are we seeking holiness on our, our own power? We can't do that on our own. We need Christ. We need um, His help to do that. We've, been, we've already been set free from sin. He's won the victory, so don't let those, that condemnation weigh you down. So ask us all, what are, are we relying on our own strength to seek holiness? Or maybe I should start, is holiness important to you? And if not, why not? And, and what is your track record with battling sin? Are you able to summon the mental powers to, every day to say only kind words to family and coworkers? or things like that? Are we able to, by our own power, push aside those things that we use for comfort when we could just, instead of kneeling and asking the Lord for our help? Are we able to do that on our own? We need Christ. We need the Holy Spirit. And I think the beautiful thing about this passage is that Jesus is showing us how He fights temptation, but the greater thing is, if you continue to read the Gospel of Luke, not only does Jesus show us how to fight temptation, He's the reason we fight temptation. And He is the strength for fighting temptation. And He provides the grace when we fail. He's all of it, all in one. And I think that's a really beautiful thing to keep in mind. He's the, he's the example to fight temptation, the reason we fight, the strength to fight it, and He's the grace when we fail. So we said, be familiar with the Word. Be Berean. If you don't know who the Bereans were, ask Ed. It's the name of his Bible study. I'm sure he would love to tell you who they were. Um, pray. Listen to your conscience. The more you listen to your conscience, I guarantee the stronger your conscience will become. Spend time with Christian friends, folks from the church here, um, people who can challenge you in your walk and encourage you. Go to the barbecues that are, are hosted this summer and go to the core groups that will be starting... In the fall, I think. Josh is in here. Yeah, I think they're starting in the fall. Go to those when they start. Um, yeah, so we need each other's support. We can't do this on our own. We can't do the Christian walk by ourselves. We need each other's support. So let's move on to verses 5 through 8. What is it you value most? What is it you value most? Let's read verse 5 through 8 again. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil is right on to the next temptation. No breaks. So it makes you wonder if this is what it was like that, that whole month-long period. No breaks, just temptation after temptation. The ESV Bibles, which we have here, tell us that the devil took him up. If you look at Matthew chapter 4 in the corresponding um, story, uh, you'll see it says he took him up a very high mountain. And he showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So, I don't know if there's a mountain like that in the world that you can see every kingdom from. And it all happened in a moment of time, so it appears that this was some sort of a vision um, that was happening. Uh, what would that be like? 
to see everything, all of that wonder, all that glory in a moment of time. I think it would be staggering. I think it would be amazing. Jesus would see himself sitting at the seat of power, ruling over everything. If Satan took you up that mountain, what would he show you? Would he show you power, like he showed to Jesus there? Authority? Leadership? A relationship you always wanted? Wealth? Big house? Nice car? Good grades? A good reputation? Being popular in school? What would he lure you with? I'm still working on being popular in school, actually, because now I'm working at a school. The kids at elementary school think I'm pretty cool, but I'm still working on the teachers, trying to convince them <laughs> that I'm cool still, but I don't know. Um, but Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to bring His kingdom. He came to die for our sins and to rise from the dead. He came to bring God glory. God was going to exalt Jesus above every name on earth. Let's take a look at what God had planned for Jesus. This is Philippians verse nine, uh, 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what God had in store for his son. Satan was offering Jesus a cheap imitation of God's glorious plan. He was offering Jesus a quick and painless way um, to the prize. But it was a lie. Instead of the accusation, this time Satan uses a lie along with the temptation. Remember, we're talking about three different, three different things that the devil would use. Lies, temptations, and accusations. This time he's using a lie along with his temptation. He's so bold as to claim that he can give Jesus everything that is already under God's power. Sure, Satan has a lot of influence in the world, but he's not sovereign. This is like getting your tax return back, and you think that the government is being kind to you and giving you your money, when it's actually money that you've already earned, and they're giving it back. This is what's interesting is, when you read elsewhere in the Gospels, you see that the demons are actually terrified of Jesus. You look later on in the chapter, in verse 32, or Luke 8, 28, the demons are, are they're actually terrified that Jesus is going to destroy them and they beg for mercy. And here, Satan's acting like he has authority over Jesus and can give him all of this stuff. It's just a lie. Satan's lie then, and Satan's lie now, to us, is momentary pleasure. Passing pleasure, the Bible talks about. There's no substance to that kind of pleasure. The enjoyment of sin is only for a moment. Then it becomes sour and bitter and is followed by guilt and often consequence. Like the rush of an adulterous relationship followed by the crushing consequences it has on your family and your marriage. Or how good it feels when you're angry and you really just let someone have it. You just you yell at them. You, you might even curse at them and let, let them know how angry they made you or how bad they made you feel and you just want to tear them down. Only for you to cool off later and then think about what you said and regret it and then having to repair the damaged relationship. Or maybe you're lying to a friend or a boss or your family, and it feels good to get away with the lie for a while, but when the lie is found out and the trust is broken, it's a long, long path to repairing that trust. Rabbi Zacharias, the Christian apologist, I'll put it up here as quote, 
I'm absolutely convinced, he's quoting G.K. Chesterton here, and I'm quoting them, so I just thought I'd do that. Um, I am absolutely convinced that meaningless does not come from being weary of pain. Meaningless comes from being weary of pleasure. And that is why we find ourselves emptied of meaning with our pantries still full. I'm absolutely convinced that meaningless does not come from being weary of pain. Meaningless comes from being weary of pleasure. You see, we need to look at our temptation to sin with, with some greater perspective. Jesus saw all the glory on that mountain, but none of it was, was worth it compared to what God had in store for him. Even if it meant pain and rejection to get there. Jesus valued God's glory and God's plan for redemption more than instant power. He valued sinners so highly that he was willing to lay down his life for you and for me. That's why John, in chapter 10, you don't have to look it up, this is verse 18, when Jesus is speaking about his life, he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Or, for some more perspective, how about Revelation 21, verses 3 to 5. I believe when Nolan preached a couple months back, he shared this passage with us. This is what's in store for us in the future, for those who know Christ as our Savior. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. There is so much more in store for us than the cheap and plasticky momentary pleasures of sin. And do we believe that? To answer Satan's lie, if you go back to verse 8 of our text, Jesus quotes scripture again, this time also from Deuteronomy, but from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, in the parallel passage in Matthew 4, Jesus actually rebukes Satan and says, Be gone, Satan. Or in the other translations you might see, he says, get behind me, Satan. Which sounds very familiar to a passage later on where he says the same thing to Peter, his, his uh, disciple. Both Satan at this time and Peter in that incident were offering Jesus a way out of the suffering. A, a quicker way to the prize, that he didn't have to go through the pain and the suffering. And Jesus rebuked both of them in the same way. Jesus repeats a clear command from Scripture to help in this time of temptation. What are we filling our heads with? This is twice now that Jesus has quoted Scripture. What are we putting in our heads? Do we know the Scriptures? If it's not word for word, do we know what they teach? Do we know what the Bible teaches? Are we filling our heads with song lyrics and movie and TV quotes? Unfortunately, actually, I can probably, Becky and I, we watch The Office far too much. And I could probably quote them as much as the Bible. But is it like that for you with anything? Is there something that you're constantly filling your head with that your time could be better spent doing it? So here's the question. What do you value most? What do you value most? Jesus valued God's glory and the prize that awaited him, even if it meant pain in the process. He valued it, valued it more than instant gratification that Satan deceivingly offered him. What do you value more? Holiness or pleasure? Are you do you value pleasing Christ over pleasing your senses? 
Here we can learn from Jesus to try to look at our temptation with some perspective. Perspective that there is more to come than the immediate and temporarily satisfying pleasures of sin now. Is there a lie that you are believing that leads you to sin? I know these are all questions that are very, very relevant to me, and I thought they'd be helpful to ask other people. Jesus shows yet again the need to familiarize yourself with Scripture. He shows us the power of the Word of God. He's firm with the temptation. He doesn't give any room to wiggle, no foothold. we got to do the same with our temptation. Don't mull it over. Don't, don't debate it. Just rebuke it. Call on the Holy Spirit to help you. Use Jesus' name. And I know I had mentioned the office earlier, but I can't help it. Um, there's a scene where Will Ferrell is in the office. He's like the new manager of the office. And he wants to eat some cake, but he's just been on a diet, right? So he doesn't want to give in to eating the cake. So he bends over the cake, and he says, No! No! And everyone in the office is scared, right? So we need to be like Will Ferrell, right? And so I know you guys are going to tell John when he comes back, and say, I don't think, I don't think Seth should preach anymore. He says, he says we should be like Will Ferrell. So, I don't know. Not literally, but... In that scene, maybe. So be firm with your temptation is what I'm trying to get at. Or run away. Run away from entirely. Stay away from situations that would lead you into temptation even. Or, or make that lie that sin will bring you happiness seem all too real. Stay away from those situations. So let's move on to our last verses, verses 9 through 15 here. The question I have for us, is God's glory more important than your own vindication? Is God's glory more important for us than our own vindication? By vindication, I mean proving yourself to be right or proving yourself to be reasonable or blameless, something like that. So verse 9, and he took him to this is Satan taking Jesus to Jerusalem. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to, to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Kind of like the first temptation, at first glance this seems kind of like an odd temptation. It's like the cliche, would you jump off a cliff if somebody told you to? But if you, if you take a look at Satan's wording, he says, if you are the Son of God. He's making a personal attack here. He wants Jesus to lash out and try to vindicate himself, try to prove who he, who he says he is. They're standing way up high on the temple, so if Jesus were to jump, Hundreds of people in the temple court would see him. Hundreds of people out on the streets would see him. And he'd be caught by the angels or he would like float down and it would be a sign that he was divinely sent. Or he would fall and die and Satan would be okay with that, I'm sure. Satan's been egging him on and poking and prodding him for 40 days, try, trying to get him to do one miracle. Just one miracle to try to shut Satan up. But if Jesus were to give, if, if Jesus were to give in to that temptation... It, it would be like he, he was acting spitefully or trying to soothe an injured pride, kind of like how we would react. And um, 
speaking of uh, vindicating ourselves, some people who were sitting here were there at the time. In college, uh, over at Cairn, we were sitting around one of the round tables in the cafeteria, and we were eating. Becky was there. Nolan was there. Nolan said something Becky didn't like, right? And she, they were sitting on opposite sides of the table. So Becky scooped up some potato salad. Why she was eating potato salad, I don't know. It's disgusting. Personal opinion. So anyway, so she's aiming it at him like this, but she's not doing it, okay? She's aiming it like this. So Nolan is sitting on the other side of the table, right? And he kind of sits up a little higher. He thinks he's in control of this. Got a big cocky grin on his face. He looks around and he says, I'm going to say this in front of everybody. You won't. So Becky did this. Bam! And so he was covered in potato salad. It was a new shirt that Anna had sent him, but he deserved it. And so... It was at that moment I decided I was going to marry her. <laughs> because it's who it was. So yeah, back to the text. That's how we try to vindicate ourselves when our pride is hurt or things like that. To be fair, Nolan did put everything on the line so Becky had to. But, so back to the text. If Jesus were to jump, if he were to jump off and the angels save him and prove that he was divinely sent, he'd be acting selfishly he would essentially be saying that the virgin birth that we read about in the beginning of Luke, if you read chapters 1, 2, and 3, and the baptism in chapter 3, where the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove and God says, announces His pleasure in Jesus, he'd be saying that those were not miraculous, miraculous enough signs to prove He was sent from God. And God's plan was that Jesus would teach, that He would heal, that He would drive out demons, and ultimately that He would die and rise again to prove that He was the Son of God and to provide a way for salvation for us. Not jumping off a tower. If that were the case, we'd be standing here today talking about today we're here to worship the man who jumped from the tower and floated down. And that would be weird. Jesus' response in verse 12 shows us that He valued God's glory more than His, than his own glory. More than His own vindication. Let's take a moment and ask ourselves if there's something that we're trying to vindicate ourselves over right now. Not like immediately right here you're trying to prove something, but, you know, during the work week or when you're at home, things like that. Are you seeking revenge for anything? Seeking revenge for a wrong? Real or perceived? Are you trying to tell people at work about the Lord, but mistakenly calling arguing with them reasoning or witnessing? Was your pride hurt and now you're not being gracious with your speech anymore? We can't argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven. We can't argue our way into reconciliation. We have to let our words be seasoned with salt and speak graciously. How we say something really affects the way people hear it and perceive it. I'm not saying to dilute the truth. That would be wrong. But the way you say it really affects the way that people receive it. Are we more worried about looking good in front of others than we are about bringing God glory? Because remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he tells us that the gospel's foolishness to people who don't believe. It, it's silly that we would gather here and talk about this thing that happened 2,000 years ago. So are we willing to look like fools if it means God is glorified and another soul is brought closer to Him? Satan's if-you-are comments are preparing Jesus for what he will hear down the road. The mobs would demand miracles, the Pharisees would demand miracles, and people would literally tell him, if you are the Son of God, 
come down from the cross. That's what he says. That's what they say in Matthew 27. And I, for one, am thankful that he has more self-restraint than me. Through his temptation, we see he's being prepared for his, his future ministry. So in verses 10 and 11, if we move on, verse 10 and 11, sin, uh, Satan is actually quoting Scripture. He's quoting Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. The psalm is all about abiding in the presence of the Lord. So the devil's trying to twist it and trip Jesus up. And again, I know it's kind of repetitive at this point, this is the third time that Jesus is quoting Scripture, and it's, it's a great reason for us. Um, it shows us how important it is to know Scripture, because people will take it out of context all the time, whether it's on accident or sometimes on purpose to try to like create loopholes or use it for personal gain or, or things like that. Jesus responds to Satan for the third time from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Simple truth. You t- take the Lord at his word. He's worthy of your trust. And we talked about that at, earlier on about um, the Gospel of Matthew as being helpful, but I would also suggest reflect on your own life or talk to, talk to believers who are older than you who have experienced more life than you, who have been Christians, who have been walking with the Lord longer than you, and they can have stories about God's faithfulness that they can share. Or like John did a few weeks back, where he kind of went back um, through his life, saying this happened because this happened because this happened because this happened, and you can see God working his way through your life. For a long time, I was enamored with my brother's prayers. I thought that for whatever reason, God would answer all of his prayers. Like, my, my parents uh, were missionaries in India for most of their career, India and Pakistan, and when my brother was like 17, he was going to come back to America for college to go to the, to join, and then join the Air Force. He prayed, God, before I leave India, let me see a tiger. So, sure enough, he's walking through the jungle with his friends, they had their backpacks on, and on the other side of the river, a tiger comes out, looks out of the river, and walks back into the jungle. And it was just, it's crazy. It's like, like such, it's such a cool thing to happen. Or like, he's, he's like in Louisiana before he's getting shipped off to, he's stationed there for about three years. And within a year, he was going to be moving to South Korea for the Air Force. So he prayed, Lord, let me meet my wife before I leave Louisiana. And then a few months, he met his now wife. They got engaged, they got married, and they moved to South Korea together. Or he's had all these weird things happen to him. Like he, he was caught in a forest fire, and they all had to run out of it. Uh, his they were on a biology field trip, and his boat was like sinking on this like coral reef. And like his class was on a biking trip, cycling around, and they were chased by elephants. It's, it's all happened before he was like 18. It's crazy. He's like the most interesting man in the world from those beer commercials. Um, but here's here's the thing, though. It, it dawned on me that just because my prayers are not exotic prayers, like, let me see a tiger, like that kind of thing, um, like, it'd be, it'd be hard to see it happening in Bucks County, but, you know. But anyways, even if it's not an exotic prayer, God still answered, answered my prayers daily, right? So keep track of that kind of thing. When you're praying, just keep track of, like, don't forget about what you've been praying for. Keep track of that so you can see when the Lord answers your prayers and you can see His kindness, His generosity in your own life. After all, we walk by faith and not by sight, right? Do, um, do we trust God even when He feels distant? Do we constantly need proof? Like Thomas only believing in the risen Christ if He touched Jesus' wounds. 
Do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's what Jesus says. I think there's a difference between asking God for guidance or asking God for faith and also asking for him to prove a, do a miracle to prove that he is real. I've often struggled with wanting proof, though, um, wanting kind of reassurance and just to know that, that he's close and that he's nearby. And what was encouraging to me was when I read somewhere that one of the biggest acts of faith is praying. Because what are we doing when we pray? When we're praying, we're confessing that God is in control, that he cares enough to listen to us, that he's powerful enough to answer those prayers, and that he, he loves us enough to answer those prayers. And if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't be praying to him. And I, I thought that was just very encouraging to me that maybe the, the mustard seed of faith to move a mountain is, is the mustard seed of faith to just start praying. So I hope that encourages somebody the way it did to me. Um, so just if, continue to pray, or if you, if you don't pray, begin praying. And after Jesus' statement in verse 13, we see that Satan leaves. He's all done. He's ended every temptation, which means there's more temptations that happen those 40 days than what we're privy to. He says he was waiting for an opportune time, so he'd be returning um, during Jesus' life here on earth. After the temptations were over, Jesus emerged from the wilderness victorious over the temptations, the lies, the accusations. He was sinless. And then we read verses 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he began his guilt-free ministry and was able to proceed with his conscience clear and the power of God behind him, and God was glorified. So I ask the question again. What's more important to us? God's glory or our own vindication? Are we able to see beyond our temptation to see God's larger plan for our lives? And what is in the, like we looked at the verses in Revelation, what is waiting for us in the future? Are we willing to look like fools in front of others if it means that Jesus' name is exalted? To be seen as weak for not hitting back or weak for not returning an insult? Or do we desire the spotlight? Do we, do we feel disproportionately hurt when the hard work that we do behind the scenes isn't noticed? And that kind of thing hurts, to be forgotten or to be uh, left out or ignored. Now, these are all things that I find hard to do, at least. Like when somebody, when somebody they honk their horn at you, then what do you want to do? You honk back at them. Just, that's like our reaction, to do that. So let's ask God to change our hearts, to, to be more like Jesus. So that, so that we not, so we want to see His glory over our own vindication, over proving ourselves right. So as I close, the three main questions that we had, um, that I thought to ask from this passage were, are you seeking holiness in your own power? What is it you value the most? And is God's glory more important than your own vindication? Those are just three things that I thought to ask, and I'm sure there's stuff that the Holy Spirit has brought to your mind as we're looking through this. I would encourage you, don't just think about it now and then forget it when you leave. Take it home with you. Consider these questions or whatever else the, the Lord has brought to your mind as you've been sitting here. And if we remember from the very beginning, we talked about we can't seek holiness in our own power. We need others. We need the Lord. We need the Holy Spirit. Don't keep these thoughts to yourself. Share them with somebody else in the church. Share them with your family. Talk about it later. We can't do this Christian life on our own. Let's work together on this. So if, if the Lord is speaking to you something that I have not said, then share it with somebody. Share it with me, at the very least. 
And Jesus gives us a wonderful example in this passage on how to deal with temptation to sin, how to deal with those accusations, those lies. He uses the Word of God as a weapon to defend himself. He's firm with the temptations. There's no debating or justifying them. He just states the truth. He did not try to vindicate himself and prove who he was. He waited for God's plan to unfold to prove who he was. He persevered and he didn't give up. And those are all strategies we can learn from Jesus. But that's all well and good. But we're not Jesus, right? And we all know that. We're going to fail. We're all going to fail. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard I try, no matter how many strategies we implement, no matter how many people that we consult with, we are inevitably going to fail. The Lord commands us to be holy because He is holy, but we're still going to fail. So here's the thing. If you have not listened to me all morning, please listen to this last part here. That's the beauty of this passage. I know we mentioned this early on, that in this passage, Jesus shows us how to fight temptation. But the more you know Jesus as you read in the Gospels, as you get to know Him in your personal life, not only did He show us how to fight temptation and give us ways to do that, He's the reason that we fight temptation, to be more like Him. He's the strength to fight temptation when we call on His name. And He's the grace when we will inevitably fail. Jesus' whole purpose for coming to this earth was to redeem us and to do what we couldn't do when we were lost in our sin. He came to this earth to do what we couldn't do. I had a conversation with Ray Fiorente a long time ago. He might not remember this, but I certainly do. Where he said, ours is not a religion of do. Ours is a religion of done. Right? We don't do, 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 do in order to, to be forgiven. Christ has won the victory. It's done. It's over. There's no shame so when we sin, when we fail, when we make those mistakes, which we all will, there is grace there. There's forgiveness. Like we said before, Jesus left that all in the grave when he rose from the dead. We don't have to worry about that. And that's a huge burden off of our shoulders. Because when we read a passage like this, we think, wow, look how Jesus defeated these temptations and was able to move forward without sinning. We're not Jesus. But because of what he did, God sees us like him, that we are that we are forgiven, that we are free from sin. We're seen as holy because of what Jesus did for us. And if we're ever tempted to believe the accusation that we're too sinful or not good enough for God's love and for His grace, let's see how Jesus interacted with real historical people. Peter, who he said, get behind me, Satan, too, denied Him three times. And, God, and Jesus made him one of the foremost leaders of the church and forgave him. There was an offer of eternal life for the woman at the well who was caught in an adulterous relationship. Entry into paradise was granted the thief on the cross who, in the most literal sense, could not save himself. He was nailed down to the cross, hours away from death, could not save himself. And Jesus offered him entry into paradise. There was forgiveness of sins and healing of paralysis for the man lowered through the roof for Jesus to heal. There's only grace for the woman dragged before Jesus to be condemned and stoned on the spot for adultery. Lepers were healed and restored to their families and communities. The blind were given sight. A room full of sinners gathers here every Sunday to worship Jesus. He's the reason to be holy. He is the example to be holy. And most importantly, He is the grace for when we will fall short. I'm going to read a poem for you guys 
It's a short one. I don't, uh, it's an unknown author, but as a teacher, I find this humbling, and it really touches my heart. He came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his sheet, all soiled and blotted, and gave him a new one, all unspotted. And into his tired heart I cried, Do better now, my child. I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. I took my day, or he took my day, all soiled and blotted, and gave me a new one, all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, Do better now, my child. Jesus is everything. He's our example. He's our reason. He's our strength and He's our hope. And He is the grace we have for when we fail. So God bless you all this week. And I hope you have a wonderful Sunday. And let's pray. Lord, I ask that You would make this more and more real to us. That Your, your goodness, Your kindness, and Your grace, how, how, how generous You are to us, Lord, when we fail time and time again. We thank You, Lord, that, that You came to this earth to die for us, to take away our sin and give us a new life. We thank You that God sees us as clean and holy because of what You did. So we worship You for that, Lord. And I pray that uh, we would be able to learn more and more about how to be holy and how to rest in Your grace for the rest of this week and in the months to come. And we thank You for that, Lord. And uh, just pray a blessing on this group of people here that we would grow closer to You. And as we uh, work together as a church, to support each other, Lord, that we'd be more like your son. So we pray these things and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.